clearly in our passage you saw there with the verse that we started in it's very clear this wonderful beautiful promise all who call on the name of the lord will be saved jew gentile black white hispanic asian it does not matter all who call on the name of the lord will be saved and we've been looking so recently in the book of romans that in christ god was in fact on the move fulfilling all of his promises gathering people together from different nations to himself these are all the promises that god gave abraham that abraham would be a blessing to the earth he would be a father of nations he would inherit a land and we see all of these things fulfilled in jesus as christ is the blessing of salvation to the nations the one prophesied in the old testament prophets right the servant the chosen messiah had come and he had suffered for the sins of his people as a substitute as it says in isaiah 53 And now in Jesus Christ and in the preaching of the gospel, the doors of salvation have been flung wide for all who call upon the name of Christ. A beautiful promise. God did not abandon his people. In fact, actually in Jesus Christ, he was being faithful to his promises. It actually was Israel who abandoned God. We see this This is point number one here. Main point, God did not abandon his people. He will never abandon his people. We see point number one, though, that Israel did abandon God. Paul here in our section provides us the clear evidence. They heard God's word, but did not heed God's word. They heard God's word, but did not heed God's word. Israel clearly heard God's word. Israel clearly heard God's word. In previous verses, we are given the great news that in the gospel, God brings Christ near. Salvation, righteousness by faith alone in Jesus Christ, all by God's grace, has been brought near. The Jews, of course, heard Christ, right? Physically, they heard him. They saw him. They knew that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They knew that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But, of course, the Jews didn't believe. So naturally, the question is, well, did they actually hear? Paul says in 18 to 21, yes, they did hear in Christ's person, physically, but then also in the preaching of the word. You see over in Luke chapter 24, go ahead and turn over there here. We're just making the case here, as Paul himself does, that the Jews did, in fact, hear the word of God. Luke 24 we can see in the book of Acts, too, that there, you know, the, the disciples are going out among all the nations and the peoples uh, to preach the gospel. But first, the gospel is preached to Jews. And you see Jesus' intention that the Jews would hear it, that the Gentiles would hear it. And so the whole world would hear the gospel. Christ has gotten up from the grave. He's about to ascend back to the Father. Look there in verse 46 of Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. It says there, Jesus says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He's talking about is written in the Old Testament. He says there, it is written in the Old Testament, the message that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He tells his disciples, you are witnesses of these things. And then he says, I'm going to give you the spirit to empower you to go and accomplish this this witnessing to others. So it was Christ's intention that the Jews first would hear the gospel. That's why it says in Romans chapter 1 that salvation has come to, the, the gospel has come to the Jews first and to the Gentiles. 
So it's very clear that the Israelites heard Christ from the beginning. It reminds us, though, of John chapter 1. You remember what it says there? Christ Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And in fact, just as they did to Christ, so they, so they would do to his apostles. They persecuted him. But in fact, not only did, did the Jews hear, the whole entire world heard the gospel. Now, don't think every person in the world. Just think the categories there that the Jew would have. Jew and Gentile, and that's the whole world. And that's why he, he's quoting there from Psalm chapter 19 in verse 18 of Romans chapter, chapter 10. Right, if you know Psalm 19, it speaks about how God's glory in creation goes to the ends of the earth. Right? It proclaims something. And Paul's just simply saying, look, just as it did with God's glory in creation, just as it went out to the ends of the earth, so it goes out in the glory of the gospel. It's gone out to the ends of the earth, just as it did to Jews, so it has gone to the Gentiles. I mean, this is Paul here, right? the missionary to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. He himself went around the Mediterranean world planting churches, and we know in Romans that he's wanting to bring the gospel to Spain where it had not yet been preached. And in that sense, as the gospel went to Jews first and then the Gentiles, it's gone out to the ends of the earth. So, of course, the Jews had heard. But here's the problem. In their hearing, they did not have ears to hear. Otherwise, they would have heeded. And you you get this understanding there in verse 14. He says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? So they actually did hear. But look there in 16, 1016, it says they have not obeyed. This here is actually a play on words in the Greek language. You don't quite get it here in heard and obeyed, but it's very clear in Greek. There's a play on language reminding us of the irony that the Jews themselves, though they had heard, they did not heed. They rejected so much, didn't they? Think about their hearing but not heeding. Some people wonder, right, are the Jews saved? They are the people of Yahweh. The clear answer is they are not. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul prays that they would be saved. And here, you've got you to be reminded of the fact that of what exactly they rejected. First, they rejected God's Messiah, God's chosen one. Israel was the na- national people of God, but yet they rejected God's chosen one, Jesus Christ. The Son of God chose to deliver them. I mean, they they rejected Christ for so many different reasons. Christ came. He was humble and weak. Think about as he went to the cross, right? He rode not on a horse wielding a sword, but instead he rode on a donkey, knowing that he would be crucified. That's not a powerful king in their mind sent to deliver. This Jesus just simply wasn't suitable to their plans as a nation. He didn't fit their national goals. They wanted national deliverance, but what he brought them in the immediate was spiritual deliverance. Not only did they reject God's chosen Messiah, Israel also rejected God's way of salvation. Israel also rejected God's way of salvation. They rejected God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course they did. Uh, As a whole, they did not see their need for spiritual deliverance by God's grace as a gift according to his mercy where he withholds judgment that the people rightly deserve. Those concepts of grace and mercy, right, those are never received well by folks who don't see their need, by folks who say, you know, why do I need salvation from heaven when I can get there myself, thank you? 
But the humility involved in God saving somebody just doesn't sit well with the pride of, I can save myself. They also rejected God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation. They rejected that salvation would go to all those who see their need. Underscore all. You go over, turn over back to Luke, actually. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. And I know, guys, uh, as you guys turn there, I know that this is a lot of history, but I'm just preaching the text. The text deals with history, right? What's going on with Israel. So we need to deal with the history. And I hope here that we're learning how to see God's hand, sovereign hand of providence throughout all of history. Here we look and see how they rejected God's plan. Luke chapter 4. Here Christ begins his uh, more public ministry. And he's ministering to people in the synagogue. And he stands up and he reads there in verse 18 of chapter 4. He quotes Isaiah and he says that this prophecy is fulfilled in me. The spirit is upon me. I am the chosen one filled and led by the spirit perfectly. I will bring deliverance to the people. I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You look there in verse 20. He rolled up the scroll. He uh, gave it back. And he says in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all marveled. They're all surprised. They were marveled at the stuff that was coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And listen to what he says to the people who are surprised and impressed. This is a word of rebuke. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the Israelites, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a Gentile land, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers, that is the unclean folks. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only a Gentile. Right? So you see what's going here. He's going to Israel, and though they are so impressed with who he is, they don't recognize him. And he says, but get this, guys. You might be the people of God as a nation, but God's salvation is going to those you call dirty people, the needy people, those who see their need and call out on the name of the Lord. I mean, he's just telling them the Gentiles are going to be saved now. And listen, you see that they understand exactly what he's talking about in 28. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They're so angry here, self-righteous, that they want to kill him, murder him. They get it. They're ticked off. They understood, as it says in our passage, they heard the gospel and understood his plan, but they refused to submit to these things. They rejected God himself this is personal something we really want to be mindful here this is not rejecting a way a pathway to god this is rejecting god himself that's how we need to see israel's sin here and frankly our sin as well it is not just a rejection of a way as if all ways lead to god this is rejecting god himself and rejecting god's ways 
that he himself has laid down. In rejecting the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, the chosen one, we reject God himself. It is incredibly personal, which is why it's important to remember that all sin is sin against God. It is not merely sinning against a law as if we break a traffic violation. This is sinning against God himself, which the Bible says all people have sinned against God, their creator. All of us have turned away and pursued our own ways instead of God. We flex our autonomy as if it were so. And so we are sinners. This is the sin of Israel. By and large, they refuse to embrace God. Just stop there for a moment. I mean, we, kind of, we identify with them here. It's crazy to think how they had been blessed with so much as, as the Israelites as a nation. They had been blessed with God himself, right? He's the one who pledged him himself. God drew near to the people. And not only that, though, but God gave them so many blessings. He had given them the promises, the covenants, the forefathers. They had, God had shown how he himself was acting in history to save and deliver. They had the testimony, yet they rejected it. This is why Paul says in Romans 2 that they were hard-hearted, storing up wrath, the wrath of God for themselves at the day of judgment. We Christians are tempted to do this as well, aren't we? Given so much, especially not only in given, given the word, right? But we stand on this side of the cross in time, meaning we look back and we see all of those things clarified in the cross of Jesus Christ and in the person of Christ. But yet somehow we go through the motions. Somehow it's not about your need of God but feeling good about yourselves, maybe your own self-righteousness, maybe even you're even here today because you think going to church somehow gets you in good with God. Maybe even some of you guys are here and you call yourself Christians because, you know, you're not a Buddhist and there's a lot of other people who call themselves Buddhists and there's a whole bunch of people in the world who call themselves Muslims. But me, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a Christian. And somehow we've lost so much of Christ and God himself and his faithfulness and his promises to save and so we reject God, or at least we end up rejecting God. We can understand Israel here, can't we? God pledges himself to them, but they refuse him. And to make it all worse, God told the Israelites that they would do this. And yet still you see their pride and self-righteousness in denying all of these things. That's what's communicated there in verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20. Here Paul is just quoting Old Testament prophecies. These are things that the Jews knew. In verse 19, Paul quotes Deuteronomy. In verse 20, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 65. And in both contexts, from the books that he's quoting from, from the passages that he's quoting from, it's so clear that Israel will sin because they are rebellious. But God would be right there holding out his hands to a disobedient people. God told them that they would continue to rebel and yet they continue to do this. He told them that I would make you jealous of those who are not a nation, right? Thinking about to a plan, he's going to go to the Gentiles, and then the Jews are going to become jealous. They're, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I mean, what's Israel supposed to think? I have shown myself, revealed himself to those who did not ask for me. Gentiles get what, the, what Israel should have had or found or grasped or laid, laid onto. 
They're jealous. This is an interesting plan. Interesting plan. Here, God is going to make them jealous for something good. This goes back to my introduction. God is going to make them jealous for something good. I mean, what does this mean? You think back to the introduction. There I, in my sin, having punched my friend, was suspended, but yet as all my other friends got those blessings, and then even had, you know, we're thinking here, earthly example, the moral character to not punch people and therefore enjoy Knott's Berry Farm, I was jealous of their blessings and their character. The same thing is going on here for those who have eyes to see. You guys know this. We all know this from daily experience, right? You might see somebody that lives a lifestyle that you want, someone who's like, you guys know what this is? This is money. Think money. You, you know that. And those who have eyes to see said, I want that. You're jealous of that. You're jealous of the lifestyle. You're jealous of the blessings. And, and people, oh, this, this is all obvious. I went to, uh, me and Jeremiah went to go um, see a whole parking lot of supercars. Uh, and this one guy owned them all. And he was launching another business thing. And, and he had his employees. This, uh, I'm saying nothing about the owner of the company, but I am saying something about the employees. The employees were trying to get people to sign up uh, uh, to get more information about how to work for this new company that the guy was launching. And the way that they were doing it was trying to get our, you know, our names and they're dressed out in you know, nice attire and everything. And they're like, do you want to live this lifestyle? Sign up. Work for this company. Do you want to live with this, this lifestyle? And those who have eyes to see sign up and say, I want that. We see this everywhere. The same thing is supposed to happen for Israel. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. There's something good about this jealousy. As one pastor put it, you know, jealousy is bad, right? Jealousy is bad if you want something so that another person can't have it. That's bad. Jealousy is also bad when you want something that's evil in and of itself. That's bad. That's not what Paul has in mind here. This jealousy, or through this Christian witness, God intends to stir the hearts of the Jews so that they would seek him. And the anger there, presumably the angry, they are angry maybe at themselves. I'm not entirely sure, but regardless, they end up seeking something good. He does this by giving himself to the Gentiles so that Israel would seek after them. 20, we look there, verse 20. I have been found, found. In other words, the Gentiles have laid hold on God. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself. God himself has shown himself to those who did not ask for me. Again, you see the irony, right? They were given so much, but yet they were so far. God uses Gentile pagans turned Christian to rebuke the self-righteous Jews, God's national Old Testament people in the Old Testament. They had all of that but still they rejected it. You see how hard their hearts are as they reject God. You get this image of a father holding out his hands day after day after day to a disobedient child, and the child continues to spurn the love of the father. We're going to get to a practical application in a moment, but first, here as we understand this passage, we can't help but see once again God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. If you've been with us over the last many months, we've seen it before. We see it here again. God is absolutely sovereign. God is the one doing. He's, he's the one who is revealing. We see later on, he's the one choosing by his grace. 
But God's absolute sovereignty doesn't compromise human responsibility. Not in this passage. We see God's sovereignty in salvation where it was God creating the world. Romans chapter 1. We see God's sovereignty in holding man accountable for their sin. Romans chapter 3. We see God's sovereignty in the Son of God taking on flesh to walk amongst a sinful people. We see also God's sovereignty in election. That is God, that is God choosing of some for salvation, some sinners for salvation, and thereby passing over others. This is all in Romans chapter 9. You can go find those sermons on the internet at FBC Hacienda Heights. But we know they're the ultimate reason why the Jews refused to believe. is actually because God had not chosen them. Not all Israel is Israel. We're going to get to that. He chooses a remnant. But even though God is sovereign, it never compromises human responsibility. All in Romans 10, we see Israel's sin. They were the ones who rejected God. In 10.3, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they refused to submit to God's righteousness. The sin is on them. People actually sin, and therefore they are responsible. That's why the apostles call people to actually repent of their sin and believe on Jesus Christ. They are responsible. So as you, friend, think about how does God's sovereignty and human responsibility work, just know that as the Bible says God is absolutely sovereign, it never exonerates man for their sin. Man is always held responsible for their sin. We see that tension. We want to maintain it in Scripture, and uh, I think it's a, a biblical tension there. But in terms of application, going back to the plan that God uses Gentiles to stir something up in the hearts of others, this is what was going on in Paul's day. And in fact, was going on, is going on in our day, both among Jews and Gentiles, among Jews and Gentiles. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.12. It's the same concept of how God is going to use his people as they believe in the gospel and live out their Christian faith to stir up something in others. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He's writing to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. This is what he says. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the spiritual Gentiles, those who reject Jesus. Um, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Interesting. We are supposed to live out our lives in public before the eyes of non-Christians. And when they speak against us as evildoers, no, actually, when Christ comes, they end up glorifying God. Somehow our lives, the testimonies that we live, the words we speak, go work towards stirring up something in them where they end up believing in Jesus Christ. So Christian, God intends to use you. In your Christian life, the way you cling to Christ, believe in the gospel, and live out all of those gospel implications, friends, God intends to use you as you live out a Christian, your Christian life where people around you will take interest in your Christ. They're going to take interest in him in so many different ways. This is fascinating and really exciting. It calls us actually to inspect all the different ways in which we can actually live out our lives as a testimony to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So let's just take for one moment here this idea of peace. Romans chapter 5, it says that we enter in the peace of God through the atonement of Jesus Christ. We now have peace with God. We know the love of the Father where we are at the throne of grace, calling upon him to draw on more and more grace, all because God loves us. Friends, did you know that the way you follow Christ in front of others speaks to that reality 
At least it should. Think about the way that we follow Christ in coming to church. Right? Presumably you talk to your friends about how you come to church. And even in that, something of the peace of God is communicated. Your friend invites you to do something on Sunday morning, but you know, you, you want to go to church. You want to go to church to worship your Christ, your risen Savior, on his day. Give him all his praise. You want to gather with other Christians because that's your recharge time, right? That sends you into the week, gives you encouragement, gives you a full battery. And you love having, or at least trying to have gospel, meaningful conversations about your heart and relation to the gospel. But for whatever reason, in that moment, when your friend invites you to do something on Sunday morning, all you can get out of your mouth is, oh, that sounds so fun. But I got to go to church. What does that tell your non-Christian friend? It might communicate to others that you still actually live under a law. It might communicate to others that church is a law that just doesn't allow you to do what you want to do. That church is your ball and chain. Right? I mean, for all you know, they could be thinking that church is something you do in order to get right with God, in order to get forgiveness when you go into confession or simply by attending or by taking the Lord's Supper, all those by doing, you therefore get right standing with God. But who would ever take interest in, oh, I just got to go to church? Does what you say as you speak about your Savior and gathering with your Savior's people, your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, does it speak about the reality of his grace and peace? Or does it cover it up? Through our witness, Jews and Gentiles are in fact to take interest. And interest, once again, in so many different ways. They could take interest in our morality. Not just because we aim to do things, but because we have been loved by God and because we want to love God. And that reflects his character, which we so want other people to know. That's why we do things. Because we love God, because we have hearts changed all by his, the power of the Holy Spirit. We love obeying his commands. They could take interest in our Christian kindness. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's, that's pretty cool, especially in this shocking environment where you don't know who in the world to trust. But yeah, Christians are kind. They could take interest in your selflessness. I mean, certainly not perfect, but in the midst of this world where everyone is out to get what they want and use you to get it. We say, no, we are here to help you unto the death, just like our Savior. The most important thing we can do is speak about Jesus Christ to you. That'd be shocking. I mean, the way we are to live out our lives as Christians, and also the way we speak about Christ, especially the way we speak about Christ, God intends to use so that other people will take interest in your Christ. That's what happens when we, are, when we live out our lives as faithful ambassadors of the kingdom of God. So church, First Baptist Church, pray that our lives together as a congregation and as individual Christians in wherever, at whatever atmosphere we are in, pray that it would be an accurate portrayal of what it means to have God as our Father. To have Christ as our Savior who has freed us from our sin. And to have the Spirit of Christ in us conforming us more into the image of Christ. We want to live out our Christian lives in the gospel of God accurately this all should get us to examine our own lives right so just think now about the ways in which you speak to your non-christian friends about jesus 
the ways in which you live out your Christian life in front of Christ. Do the things you say and do the ways you live indicate anything, anything at all that says your heart is set heavenward? Because if you speak and act just like the world, what more is there to be desired with Jesus? I'm thinking here of Psalm 19 where it says that God's word is to be desired more than fine gold and honey. You think as Christians, you know, we say Christ is to be desired more than fine gold and honey. But we don't testify to that if we live just like the world. This should get us to examine ourselves by the way you live your life and by the way in which you speak about your Savior. Would your friends conclude that they are not missing out one bit on this Christ stuff. Christian, if you find yourself wanting to be a brighter light, maybe you are learning, right, how to do this as a, non, as a new Christian, or maybe a young Christian, or maybe right now you're convicted because you just don't do this well. The first step in being a brighter light is actually to know the God of light. So let me encourage you to grow in your knowing God, who is gracious and merciful and steadfast in his love, right? The more you know him, the more you're going to speak about him. The more people are going to say, wow, this guy really loves this Christ. Let's say, you know, we know this too from regular day experience. I mean, if you guys were talking to me and I was talking to you back about uh, this wife, Melanie. No, 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 this wife, Melanie. I got to go and do this with her and that with her. And this is the way she is. You're going to conclude something about me and something about my wife. So, friends, your friends are concluding something about your Christ by the ways in which you talk about them. So let me encourage you just to know more about God. You will not be disappointed. He is steadfast in his love, merciful, gracious, and will go to the death for you and your security in him. If you're looking for someone to start, go ahead and start with the book of Romans. You can find those sermons once again online. You can read along as you listen to those sermons to know more about who your God is. If you're interested in reading a book that helps explain biblical texts this book is awesome knowing god jay packer this book changed my life when i was 20 years old at biola this was a signed reading for me and chapter 19 changed my life of what it means to be adopted into the family of god through the sacrifice of jesus christ so that's knowing god by jay packer grab the book read it with friends it'll help you in your knowing of god So we as Christians, saved by the grace of God given in Jesus Christ, want to aim to have an accurate picture of what it looks like to be loved by God, saved by Christ, and led and filled, born again by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And there we picture glorious freedom in the gospel. Praise the Lord. In doing so, God's going to use that somehow to stir up in Jews and non-Jews a desire for God himself. Of course, there's going to be some who are clearly going to deny and not like what you're talking about, reject Jesus flat out, but there will be some who will take interest. So to sum up point number one, like last week, point number two is much smaller. (laughs) Point number one, it was Israel who abandoned God as they rejected Christ, and as they rejected God, his grace and his mercy in Jesus Christ, they rejected God's plan of salvation. But in the midst of Israel's sin, did you notice God's posture in verse 21? His posture there. Again, God is loving. He's patient. He has not abandoned his people. This brings us to point number two. Point number two, God has not abandoned his people. 
And this is seen in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6 here. Uh, Paul asked the question there, verse 1, I asked that has God rejected his people? By no means. And then he goes on to give evidence of how he hasn't rejected his people. And it's plain and obvious, right? He points himself to himself. God has not rejected his people. I am an ethnic Jew. I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Conclusion, God has not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. Of course, this reminds us of Psalm 44, verse 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. And you see here, this is all dependent upon God foreknowing. And he was not talking about the foreknowing that Oscar is going to choose God and therefore God will choose Oscar. That's not what foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge means that God sets his love upon a people and enters into covenant with them. He chooses them. He reveals himself to them and he secures relationship with them. It's not just mere head knowledge here. This is actually God setting his covenant love upon a people. So here we're pointed right back to God's love for his people. Just as God had brought ethnic Israel, or sorry, Paul, an ethnic Jew, into saving a relationship with him, so he's going to see it through. That's evidence that God has not abandoned the ethnic Jews. The second piece of evidence, Paul tells us God is actually saving more. God is actually saving more ethnic Jews. He's not alone in this. And if you read there, he, he speaks there, do you, verse 2, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What was going on there? He reached back to 1 Kings, verse 19, the prophet Elijah. He was ministering to the Israelites. But it was a really bad time for him. Queen wanted him dead, so he goes off and he runs. He's despairing unto life itself. He's depressed. He thinks he's all by himself. He goes into a cave and he pleads with God, I'm all alone. And what's God's response to him? God's reply. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, which is a pagan god. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. You see, the logic there is evident. Paul was saved. He's a Jew. Just like God had a remnant in the time of Elijah, so God has a remnant even in Paul's day and even right now. God says there, I have kept 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to a foreign God. What a smack in disobedient Israel's face. It's an absolute rebuke. They are compared to Israel then who was worshiping false gods. But he's saying that to the people of Israel who rejected Jesus. They are meant, they are rebuked once again in their sinfulness in rejecting Jesus Christ. Praise God here, we are pointed to the fact that God has never abandoned his elect. He never will. That is his track record that we as Gentiles, non-Jews, can be confident in. Right? We know that out of national Israel, there has always been a true spiritual Israel. As we know in Romans chapter 7, not all Israel is Israel. God has always had his preserving hand on things. What does the passage say? He has kept for himself. He keeps for himself. You can't get away from this election language. And how does he do the keeping? It says there, it's not based on works. Otherwise, grace would be evacuated of all the concept and definition of grace. Grace would no longer be grace if God chose by works. He chooses by his grace. It is true that the majority of ethnic Jews were hard-hearted and saw no need of God. Thus, verse 7 says, they failed to obtain what they were seeking. 
that is, this righteousness that they worked for, they never attained it. But who attained it? It's like Romans chapter 9. Who attained it? Those that God reserved for himself. And not by works, right? We might be tempted to say, well, the 7,000 there, they didn't bow the knee, and therefore God chose them. You can't think that because it would no longer be grace. It wouldn't make sense here. It is God who keeps for himself. It is God himself who chooses, and it's God who is faithful. He never abandons his people. He is always faithful to his promises. Not a Christian, if you're visiting with us today, we see this so clearly in Jesus Christ. Whether you're visiting and you know yourself to be an ethnic Jew or whether you are a non-Jew. We see God's faithfulness in his, to, to his promises to save here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though, friends, you were sinful, even though you had rejected God, earned for yourself just condemnation, you stand before God guilty, the weight of the law hanging over you, yet God is faithful to his promises. So he sends Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, to take on flesh for you, a sinner, all by his grace, to die at the hands of sinners, all by his grace, to bear the wrath that you deserve for having rebelled against God, all by his grace. If you repent of your sins and believe on him, you see God's faithfulness here. You cannot get away from it. It is Israel who abandoned, but friends, God never abandons. The Son of God takes on flesh and goes all the way to the death for you if you would right now repent of your sins and turn and believe. Friends, don't base your, your one salvation on works. You can't do that because you know your works are the things that get you into trouble, which is why God rescues in Jesus Christ. Three days later, Jesus Christ gets up from the dead showing that payment has been made. And so we, therefore, those who are Christians, have nothing to fear. We're, we are reconciled with God where there is now freedom and peace and access to the throne of grace. As we apply this too and think about evangelism and God's sovereignty, which we have been for some time, there are some people that think that God's sovereignty and salvation in election hinders evangelism. You might think, oh, well, God only keeps for himself some, then what's the point of evangelism? But friends, we have to see here that that doesn't hinder Paul. That didn't hinder, hinder Paul from evangelizing the Mediterranean world. Right, in the book of Acts, we see him evangelizing Jews even. We might think here, oh, 7,000. One could argue, you know, is he talking about uh, a little 7,000 or seven as in a number of perfection, and therefore it's 7,000. Um, and then we might think, well, if it's such a small minority, why do we need, even need to evangelize? But in the book of Acts, we see Paul going into the synagogues, evangelizing over and over and over again. And he's doing so indiscriminately. He's just preaching the gospel to everybody from the scriptures. He himself doesn't feel a need to determine who will stand the best chance of coming to Christ or embracing Christ and then preach the gospel. He just sows the seed everywhere. Friends, I hope you see that just because God is sovereign in salvation does not mean that our sharing of Christ should be restricted to a few no, the call to believe on Christ should go out to all, just as Christ preached, all who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. He called all in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, to take it a step further, I say, I think the word 
shows us too that because God has elected some, therefore we as Christians should go out into the world. Because God has elected some, therefore we should go out into the world. In the, wor- in the words of Romans 10, 14, 17, which is summarized there in verse 17, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we want to go out just sharing the gospel and evangelizing others. And that evangelism, which is commanded in Scripture, actually secures God's ends. Does that make sense? The means that God says, church, I want you to evangelize. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. It accomplishes God's ends of drawing people to salvation. How will those whom God plans on saving, how will those actually be saved if you never share the gospel? So therefore, we are to go out into the ends of the earth. The election doesn't undercut evangelism. Instead, it drives it. We can look at so many people in church history who have believed God's sovereign election compels them to evangelize. Think of Jonathan Edwards, a North American pastor. At one point in time in his ministry, he was evangelizing to Native Americans. George Whitfield, English preacher who lived during Edwards' time, he gave his life to going up and down the eastern seaboard of America evangelizing. You can think, too, about the modern missions movement in the 1800s, right? The Calvinistic churches and the Calvinistic individuals who formed the Baptist Missionary Society sent out some of the most famous missionaries in the last couple hundred years. William Carey to India. Adoniram Judson to Burma. You can think, too, of C.T. Studd, who went to China and Africa. All Calvinists. Now, you guys know I don't use that word hardly ever in this pulpit because I don't want to confuse being a Calvinist or think that, uh, how do I put this, that one cannot love Jesus if they are not a Calvinist, right? That's what would be uh, communicated if I was always using the term. One can love Jesus and not be a Calvinist. But I'm just making the point here that people can believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation and still evangelize. That's so clear. So for this church, where we preach and teach the sovereignty of God's salvation, we see that the end of God saving his elect calls for God's appointed means. That is evangelizing, sharing Christ, and doing so indiscriminately. We do it to everybody. By his grace, we might see some turn from their sins and believe on him, Jew or Gentile. Of course, the question is, as we conclude, Are we ready to proclaim Christ and live out our lives as Christians in such a way where we portray accurately what it means to be loved by God in Christ? Because in doing so, God says it will stir in others a desire for them to seek after God himself. God will never abandon his people, whether his elect from Jews or his elect from the Gentiles. That we can trust and therefore have great confidence in God and his salvation plan. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a amazing thing that you are doing through your people even right now. That calls for great responsibility for us to take Christ so seriously, 
to walk in Christ's footsteps, to love Him all the more, to embrace the gospel every single day and every single moment, knowing that as we worship Christ and our Christ's body, we are to be Christ's light in a dark place. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We see here that you are faithful to your elect, whether they be among the Jews or whether they be among the Gentiles. And Lord, we know that you are steadfast in your love. You are gracious. You are merciful. And so our sanctification, our growing in holiness, and our perseverance, all of those things ultimately come down to the fact that you are faithful to who you are and to the things that you yourself have pledged for sinners. God, we give you great praise. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are such a God that goes to the death for those who don't deserve it. You are laid down into the ground so that we might be brought up with you and one day glorified. So Lord, in the words of, that you give us here in Romans, Lord, we thank you that nothing will separate us from your love and that those whom you foreknow, you will secure their salvation and see us all the way until the end. Lord, we pray that we would go out from this place so mindful of these things, so jumping with joy in knowing that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, that the righteous has died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And Lord, we pray that those around us would so marvel at the fact that we have such great hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things for the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.